Thanks for listening to The Gist. If you want to check out an ad-free version and bonus content, go to subscribe.mikepesca.com. It is the best way to directly support our endeavors. It's Saturday. It's a Saturday show, and it's summer, so stay cool out there, which, of course, implies you were cool to begin with. Maybe you were. Most Gist listeners are. I'm just talking pure demographics and market research. We're going to take you back to 2017. I did an interview with Tom Nichols of The Atlantic, and we talked about why Vladimir Putin was entirely against Ukraine joining NATO. A lot of NATO talk in the air now, a lot of NATO talk in the air then. A lot of NATO talk on the show this week when I talked about the country of Sweden joining NATO and I wondered, wait, weren't those guys Nazis? I did have an interaction with a listener who said, you know, my dad lives lives in Sweden and the Sweden Democrats aren't really Nazis. Sure, they might have or that party might have years ago, 20 years ago, had roots within the Nazi party or far right nationalists. But now... Parties in Europe, if they are very concerned about immigration, get called Nazi. Now, I won't excuse anyone for being far-right extremists, and I absolutely will not weigh in on the internal politics of Sweden. But actually, what I was trying to do with the, weren't they Nazis? It wasn't a spiel. It was the thing that started the show. But what I was trying to do was to open the possibility of two questions, that what is NATO doing letting in Nazis? Or maybe the amount of Nazism contained within these quote-unquote far-right Sweden Democrats was slightly exaggerated at the time. And I'm not going to cop out and say the truth might be somewhere in between, but I do think both of those things were going on. The current governing coalition includes far-right elements that if you trace their DNA or just maybe even more than lightly scratch some of their leaders, will show some overlap with far-right elements that were Nazis. Maybe we were being too facile uh, a year ago when we said far-right neo-Nazis form government in Sweden. But maybe we're being not facile enough when we don't raise the issue once more when they join NATO, like we'd like them to. Anyway, all stuff to ponder as we ponder NATO and Nazis and Ukraine on this hot summer day. Enjoy. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks. It's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. 
Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Joining me now is Tom Nichols. His latest book is called The Death of Expertise, and he has a stake in that claim because he is a mortician. No, wait, I'm focusing on the wrong noun. He is an expert, a Russia expert. He was a Senate staffer, college professor, and currently a professor for national security affairs at the U.S. Naval War College. And two things that are tangentially important or that you may glean from our talk. One, he is a Republican never-Trumper who eventually endorsed Hillary Clinton because Trump was just too dangerous, he argued. The second thing is he is a five-time Jeopardy champion. Therefore, I began our conversation by asking a question, but phrasing it in the form of a question. So while I have you here and you are a Russia expert, tell me one thing that is either not being discussed or that's underemphasized in this whole Russia hacking the election story. There's, as we talk, there's a, a Senate committee uh, convening today discussing it. But what is one underappreciated aspect of this, do you think? That is a great question. And the answer is the degree to which the Russians are determined to break NATO. Mm-hmm. The Russians have attacked our democratic institutions. They're, they've done it brazenly. They've done it openly uh, in a way that we've really n- never seen before, where they're practically bragging about it. I mean, the United States and, and the old Soviet Union used to play uh, this game. They have these kind of slap fights uh, more quietly. The Russians have directly come at us now against our institutions. But the story that's not being talked about is that underlying all of this, going all the way back through – uh, WikiLeaks and Snowden and Putin's behavior uh, going back even uh, 10 or 12 years, m- Russian military exercises, there is a consistent and very conscious and very well-executed plan to drive the, a wedge between the United States and Europe and to force the United States out of European affairs, to leave Russia dominant on the continent, and to prove that NATO is just a fiction, that it's just a piece Mm. of paper. And I think the dangerous part of that is that at some point, Putin and his coterie will try to test NATO and to test NATO's Article 5, which is the mutual defense clause, to see if we will actually respond to it, which could lead either to the collapse of NATO or to World War III. Yes, um, it's been invoked once. It was the 9-11 attacks, but they right. could, what, roll into Estonia? Well, I, I think the danger is that they don't roll. It's that they creep, mm. that uh, they do it kind of the way they, they did with Ukraine, where they respond to some fake humanitarian crisis, pretend that there are Russian speakers in danger, put in some small force that's there to, quote, unquote, help the locals or to help you know, fake volunteers. And then they just over time get us used to the idea that there are Russian forces sitting on NATO territory and let us die the death of a thousand cuts so that five or six or 10 years from now, they can say, see, NATO never meant anything. Aren't there Russian forces on NATO territory in Turkey right now? Not occupying Turkish uh, territory, and they've the Turks and the Russians. Um, you know, the Russians overflew the Turks, and the Turks yeah. shot down the plane, and they all it's agreed complicated. to kind of yeah, it's complicated. Yeah, right? Yeah. If they were a Facebook relationship, they'd be complicated. Right. Um, but there are not Russian forces in there, and Turkey is still a member of NATO. They haven't seized any territory, uh, but I think that they will try at some point to show that NATO doesn't matter because Putin, he's not a communist. He's he's 
what he really is is a guy who's nostalgic for the old days of the Soviet Union as a great power. He didn't care about the right. ideology or the communism or any of that stuff. But he misses he misses the days when the United States was flat on its back and the Kremlin was riding high. And he's trying to get back to that. Yes. And his people want that too, whether they know it or not. And every time he could play on those nationalistic instincts, it works. But this would suggest to me that the reason they're, well, what do you think? The reason that they're so against NATO is they want to have their own sphere of influence. They don't want to roll into Washington, D.C. or take over the world. They just want that area of the world to be under their hegemonistic control. Well, it's actually more complicated than that because for a lot of Russians over a certain age, you know, the Russians who are like my age, right, in their kind of Mm -hmm. mid to late 50s, NATO is just a kind of a hot button for them because they were just – you know, it was just driven into them for years that NATO is the most dangerous thing in the world. And some of those folks are never going to get over that. And it's understandable. And the Americans have to shoulder some blame here. I mean, we expanded NATO pretty fast. And we basically pushed the Russians out of the way and said, we don't really care what you think about this, even when the Russians were a lot friendlier to us in the 1990s. And I think, you know, Clinton and Albright and others have a lot to answer for there. But the other problem is that NATO represents the successes of everything Russia failed at. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason Russians hate NATO is because Russia just doesn't have any friends in the world. You know, I've, I've, I, even I've kind of tweaked some of my Russian colleagues about this. They say, oh, you guys aggressive, aggressively expanding NATO. I'm like, look, I'm sorry that we have friends and you don't. Um, you have clients. You know, yeah. Russia doesn't have friends. They have clients. They have customers. They have temporary expediencies. They have other dictators like Assad who want to be on their side. But they don't really have friends with whom they share a worldview. And on top of that, the Russians look over at NATO and I, I think as they have for hundreds of years, long before the Bolshevik Revolution, they look over at Western Europe and they say, how come those people live so well and we keep screwing everything up over here? How, Do they not have how, how friends? How does that happen? Do they not have friends because they don't have something to sell the world besides Russian power and dominance? Like at least the United States represents a few things and has delivered to some extent on things like freedom, openness, uh, jazz and blue jeans. Yeah, they, they don't have an ideology that isn't – I mean they had friends and allies for the short time that they had an ideology, which of course was an oppressive ideology, but it was attractive to at least some people. Right. Um, but but Russia's never really had a concept of a nation – uh, that isn't about Russia, that isn't about the messianic place of Russia. And, you know, the United States, uh, I, I, this is something that's really interesting. You're talking about Russians when you, you try to get them to understand why, for example, the United States, Canada, Great Britain, France are all so close. It's not because we're all, uh, you know, capitalist economies. I mean, that that there's a lot of capitalist economies we're not friendly with. They, they, it's almost like they can't understand this kind of family feeling among democracies and the shared history of, you know, two, three hundred years of interaction among us that they've never had with anybody else. They find it, I think, genuinely mystifying sometimes. I have heard this idea that Putin's trying to rewrite the Cold War. Do you think there's a good chance he could succeed? No, but I think you're right that he wants to get a better outcome from it. I think he feels like the the Soviet leaders before him uh, got a raw deal and just rolled over. Now, I think that's ridiculous. I think um, the Soviet Union – I would actually say the the Soviet Union and its leaders got off the hook a lot more easily than history normally lets people like that off the hook since many of them, instead of ending up in prison or at the end of a noose, ended up getting rich. 
But uh, I think he feels that way. And he feels that the, that the Soviet Union got a raw deal, that it was handed over to the West, that um, Russia is a great power whose interests weren't respected after the end of the Cold War. And now there's a kind of a, a revanchism, this kind of urge to get even with the West. And I, I, that's the thing I find the most painful because I think Russia and the United States and Europe actually have a lot of common interests. And if the Russians can let go of this kind of, um, you know, deep sense of grievance that they've had for centuries and just join the Western world. I mean, they are part of the Western world. They, they, they hate to admit that sometimes, but uh, Moscow and St. Petersburg are, in fact, Western cities. They are very much a Europeanized culture. They are primarily a Christian a Judeo-Christian nation uh, by history. This notion that Russia is special and isolated and unique is what's keeping them special and isolated and unique. At what point does Putin sour on whatever Trump can give him and what does that look like? I think you're seeing it already. I think there's a certain amount of buyer's remorse in Moscow. I think they were popping some champagne corks because they hated Hillary Clinton so much. It's not so much that they were that much in favor of Donald Trump that I think it's I think you talked about what aren't people talking about. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I think has become part of the conventional wisdom about the Russian attack on the election is that it was in, it was because the Russians were in Donald Trump's favor. That is, in, in my view, personally, incorrect. That It's that they were so against Hillary Clinton um, because of her husband's role and her role in the 90s and what came afterwards. And um, I, I think that they were hopeful that Trump was basically going to just leave them alone, um, lift the sanctions, let them have their way in Europe and do whatever they felt like doing. They, they may be souring on that, not because Trump's really going to oppose them, but because Trump is so unpredictable. And that always makes the Russians nervous. No, and it makes a lot of world leaders nervous. Nobody likes unpredictability in a U.S. president. You know, I think the Russians are looking over at us saying, well, we let, you know, what, who do we talk to and how do we know what, what's op, what statement? I think like a lot of us are, they're saying what statement is operative on any given day. I think that may have the Russians a little bit unnerved about Trump and not in a good way. I know the president has talked about it's good to be unpredictable. It's okay to be unpredictable. It's not okay to be random. And I think that's part of what they're worried about. Yeah. And it also helps Putin to have a boogeyman in the United States to blame on all the problems of his well, world. Yeah. Right, right now, that boogeyman for him is, you know, everybody in Europe, um, you know, Theresa May and Merkel and the rest of them. But uh, there's no doubt that, you know, he he will find somebody, if not Donald Trump, he will find somebody in the Trump administration to blame because this is what Kremlin leaders do. They say, well, it might not have been uh, George Bush, but it's Condi Rice. It may not have been Bill Clinton, but it's Madeleine Albright. They usually go for the next guy down to say that's the source of all our troubles in Washington. And I think that's going to happen, you know, pretty, pretty soon, because I don't think the things that Putin wants, he can really get out of China. I mean, he's not really going to get the sanctions ending tomorrow. Um, he's not going to get any kind of major movement on, you know, Ukraine or any other major American policy. But on the other hand, I could that it, things could change tomorrow. I mean, I, I, I don't know what America's Russia policy is right now. And I think that's a problem both for me and for the Kremlin, because we all we all would like to know what that policy actually is. Tom Nichols is the author of The Death of Expertise, the Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters. Thanks for sharing your expertise with us, Tom. Thanks for having me.
When we last left the Swedes, they were essentially run by Nazis. Remember that one? Now, Britain's centre-left uh, Prime Minister Magdalena Andersson has conceded defeat and announced that she's stepping down following Sunday's general election. Andersson's Social Democratic Party and their left-wing coalition are lost by a thin margin uh, to the Conservative bloc, which includes the far-right Sweden Democrats, a party that has its roots in a neo-Nazi movement in the 1980s and 90s. Well, now Sweden is in NATO in a move that is said to bolster security, safety, and the expansion of liberal ideas. But what about the Nazis? Aren't they kind of the epitome of the opposite of those things? Well, the prime minister of Sweden, Ulf Kristersson, not a Nazi. He's a moderate. But the moderates in Sweden are kind of right, and the largest party in his governing coalition are also not the Nazis. There's the Swedish Democrats, but... The Swedish Democrats, those are actually the Nazis we're talking about. They are the party that was formed from the vestiges of the Nazi party, plus the party's founders and early members were several people who had previously been active in white nationalist neo-Nazi political parties. So it's complicated. On the one hand, Sweden definitely should be in NATO, giving Turkey and Hungary a veto over Sweden. Joining NATO is like giving, I don't know, Roberto Benigni a vote for the best acting Oscar. He, by the way, has such a vote. Sweden is a progressive, forward-thinking, equitable, democratic country that now happens to be uh, lightly run by Nazis. Or if not run, certainly powered by a cadre of those who aren't not Nazis. But the country of Ukraine, which is why it's important for Sweden to join NATO with the war in Ukraine, the country of Ukraine itself is being bravely defended by certain units who are also not, not Nazis. Again, a little bit complicated. Eh, maybe it's not that complicated. Maybe it goes like this. If you want to beat the bad Russians, you got to make certain accommodations with some flavor of Nazi. And while that didn't work for Neville Chamberlain, never say Neville, I guess. Or to quote Oscar voter Roberto Benigni, life, it is a beautiful, unless life is about trench warfare and cluster munitions and a grueling land war in Europe. And then it is a lot less a beautiful and a little more Nazi. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara, and the senior producer of The Gist is Joel Patterson. I'll talk to you Monday. Are these the Nazis, Walter? No, Johnny, these men are nihilists. There's nothing to be afraid of.